Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. A notable change in the recent pattern of global migration is the movement of people within Asia. Previous studies on Asian migration have mostly considered the movement of people from Asia to Europe and North America. But in recent years, countries in Asia have emerged as major receiving sites of intra-regional migration. In the ASEAN region alone, 6.9 million out of a total of 9.9 million international migrants have moved between countries within the region. So what are the motivations for inter-Asian migration? Are migrants responding to push factors or to pull factors? And what does their willingness to uproot themselves tell us about their hopes and dreams for a different kind of life? To talk to us about these questions, in particular inter-Asian migration from Japan to Malaysia, I'm joined on the SEAC Stories podcast by Dr. Shiori Shikuto, lecturer in anthropology at the University of Sydney. Shiori's feminist research bridges household economies with transnationalism, with a particular focus on the movement of people and domestic things between Japan and Malaysia. Her recent projects have focused on the rise of Japanese migration to Malaysia in the aftermath of various disasters, at the scales of the personal, the national and the environmental. Shiori's research shows how transnational movement destabilises heteronormative life courses and how gendered household practices in turn shape and reshape the existing hegemonic geopolitical relations. Shiori is co-editor of the special issue, Gender, Migration and Digital Communication in Asia, published in 2022, and she joins us on CX Stories today. Welcome, Shiori. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. There are various motivations for migration, and your research looks closely at how changes in the normative life course can impact upon a person's decision to leave Japan. But before we come to those, can I ask you to talk us through some of the more standard or well-known reasons for migrating first, such as labour mobility and education, and perhaps tell us why these modes of migration are increasingly taking place in an inter-Asian context? Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely. So as you said, labour migration or education migration has been one of the dominant reasons for people leaving one country to the other. And as you have generously introduced to my research, initially or previously, what was happening was to see people from Asia migrating to uh, European countries or North America, including Australia, to pursue these opportunities that they didn't really see uh, were available in their home countries in Asia. But more recently, we see more and more people moving within Asian regions, for instance, Japanese corporate workers quitting their jobs in Japan to move to China or Southeast Asian countries, including Thailand and Malaysia, and also the education migration as well. I do see some education migrants from Japan to countries like Malaysia and Thailand as increasingly popular trend among Japanese people who are looking for overseas or English-speaking education opportunities for their children. So you can think of several reasons for this. The most obvious one, of course, is the rise of Asia, the more economic opportunities that it offers, which might not have been available previously. But I also think there is what's happening is also a reimagination of what is considered a normative life. 
Okay, we're going to come to what is a normative life because I think that is a really interesting question. Before we do, one of the other types of migration I just wanted to mention, which you've identified, is retirement migration and this increasing number of older people moving within the region. To what extent this mirror patterns of retirement migration in Europe or between North and South America? Yeah, that's a really good question. So retirement migrants are really diverse population group. So for instance, Japanese retirees moving to Malaysia can be quite different people from, let's say, Japanese retirees moving to the Philippines or Cambodia or Laos. My research was looking at Japanese retirees in Malaysia, and they do share some common similarities between, let's say, for example, British people moving to south of France or North Americans moving to Florida or Mexico for their retirement. And what they have in common is often their pretty affluent financial backgrounds. So a lot of them are from middle to upper middle class backgrounds. And in the case of Japanese retirees, and I think in the case of many people in Europe and North America that I identified, they've often held very high positions in the large corporations in their working lives. And often they do adhere to certain ideas of retirement often characterized by the idea of active aging, that they want to lead a comfortable but also responsible, independent, active life. To what extent is access to good healthcare a consideration for these retirees? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's part of the reason why this group of affluent Japanese retirees choose Malaysia. So Malaysia offers a very good healthcare system, which was part of 10th Malaysia national plan to develop Malaysia as a regional hub for medical tourism. So definitely a good healthcare system is one of the most important considerations for retirees. But then what I often found was that if they do have conditions that need treatment, they often go back to Japan to access medical care and partly because of the insurance policy, but also the language issues. Okay, that's really interesting. So we've identified a couple of different motivations for migrating, um, including labour mobility, education, retirement. Your research suggests that the decision to migrate is often prompted by a change in the normative life course. So what does a normative life course look like in a Japanese context? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. When I started this research, I didn't even think of this normative life course or I wasn't looking for one in the field site. But when I started it, this whole idea of gender normativity was shouting from the field site. So for instance, in the case of retirees, often when they retire, well, those people who are retiring now or previous five years to 10 years previously are from baby boomers generation who have lived through the high growth period of Japanese economy. And that high growth economic era was governed by a very strict heteronormative gendered standard of divisions of labor. So while men worked outside for long hours, women lived at home to look after the kids. So that was a very strict gender divisions of labor as a heteronormative norm. But when they retired, what happened was often those men who have spent, devoted their life to building the Japanese economy, lost a sense of belonging, both in the community or in the family life, precisely because they were quite absent throughout their life. 
at the same time, the Japanese economy or Japanese government aging policy advocates for actively aging retirement to look after yourself, to devote yourself to community life, to do volunteering activities. But that's an ideal that's very difficult for achieve for the group of former corporate workers who've never really built that sense of community. So it's really that gendered divisions of labor that they lived with that creates the sense of dislocation in Japan, which then propels their desire for something different, almost to start anew, perhaps even the spousal relations, to create a new relationship together in a different context of Malaysia. It's so interesting because you, you've mentioned these gender expectations around women from the baby boomer generation in particular, staying at home to care for their children. But one of the cultural norms in Japan is also to stay at home and care for the elderly, for the grandparents. So is that a factor here as well with retirees leaving and perhaps that middle generation in Japan no longer needing to care for their elderly? Yeah, that's a really good question as well. Japanese government is in the middle of reform to rethink the care labor. So previously, they put a lot of investment into the professional care for the elderly care so that they're taking away that responsibility from the family to the public. But now with continuing recession, they're now creating a reform to put more responsibilities to the family care. So it's an ongoing debate. What I thought was interesting was often I saw in Malaysia the couples would come together to Malaysia in the first instance, but within two or three years, often the female spouse would go home first. And that's partly because they felt the responsibility to look after not just their parents or parents-in-law, but also their children as well, continuing to look after the children, which is something that the male partners didn't quite share or see the need to. So that gender divisions of labor continue uh, in their retirement in Malaysia. Well, that's something I want to come to about whether inter-Asian migration is a way of escaping these oppressive structures or whether they find a type of short-term liberation, but the structures continue. But we'll come to that. First of all, I want to ask you about how these life courses change or go off course when circumstances change. And we've mentioned disasters. Can you tell us more about the sort of changes that might prompt somebody to move from Japan to Southeast Asia to Malaysia, which seem to me range from the intensely personal to the national and the global? Yeah, well, thanks for asking that question. So when I say disaster, I mean it also in a literal sense as well. So for my postdoctoral project, I looked at the group of Japanese women and their children who left Japan after the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011. So what happened there was after the tsunami and Fukushima nuclear meltdown, a lot of people, including women, were very worried about food safety for themselves and their children. But the Japanese government insisted that the nuclear safety standard was clear, everything is safe to eat. But then there was the disjuncture between the government standards and the WHO standards. So a lot of people, especially mothers, began to be more and more suspicious. So they've started to organize a citizen scientist group uh, online to get the Geiger counter and to measure the radiation levels of vegetables themselves and share that information online. 
But the government then labeled that as misinformation and harmful to the national collective imaginary of recovery efforts. So suddenly, these mothers lost the public standing and it was publicly shamed. And often that caused disruptions in their spousal intimate relations as well, because often, again, the male partners didn't see the same amount of risk as their female counterparts in terms of food safety. So then what happened was often these women went to a Twitter network or digital platform to share information with similarly minded mothers, and they created the migration network to evacuate temporarily or permanently to a country that would accept them. And that was often uh, Southeast Asian countries such as Malaysia and Thailand. So why are they choosing Malaysia, Thailand, other countries in Southeast Asia? Are are there particular sorts of connections through special visa schemes or economic incentives or is the issue more complicated than that? Yeah, that's a really good question. As you say, and with many migrant networks, often it's, oh, because I knew someone who was already there, that's definitely the starting point. But also Malaysia has visa program called Malaysia My Second Home Program Visa, which allows for people who has the visa, both retirees and the working population, to live in Malaysia for 10 years. So that's one reason uh, Malaysia is chosen. Another reason why Malaysia and Thailand is chosen is because the international school education is quite affordable compared to other countries. So by enrolling their children in international school, they get the student visa and the guardian visa and that allow them to stay in these countries. So yes, definitely the visa requirement is a major reason why these countries are chosen. What is life like for these Japanese migrants once they, they get to Malaysia? Is there a sense of contentment or do they continue to suffer the same anxiety that prompted them to move in the first place? Yeah, that's a really good question for both retirees and the, the Fukushima nuclear disaster migrants. So the ambivalence is there, of course. So the continued gendered constraints creates these anxiety and uh, ambiguity. So for example, in the case of retirement migrants, as you mentioned, it might offer the temporary liberation and excitement of imagining new life together, a companionship in their retirement. But at the same time, what they see as an ideal retirement between the male spouses and the female spouses are quite different. And often the cause of anxiety is because of what male retirees see as an active retirement. So often the men would continue to say, oh, we should enroll in this activity and that activity in, uh, let's say, a Japanese cultural center in Kuala Lumpur to keep ourselves busy. Otherwise, the life is really boring. But then for many female spouses, they would go, what do you mean life is boring unless we're doing all these public activities? There are so much to do at home in terms of looking after the household. And that labor continues in the retirement. To say that there's nothing to do in retirement is actually quite insulting for women who have been devoting their life to that non-public aspect of life. So yeah, that anxiety definitely continues in their retirement and they slowly negotiate that in their negotiation to thinking about when to go back. You can take the relationship out of the Japanese normative life course, but you can't take the Japanese normative life course out of the relationship. Uh, Out of the household, I guess. I mean, it's a continuous negotiations and I think the Malaysian landscape definitely helps in terms of that negotiation. You say that liberation from the oppressive expectations of Japanese society 
around economic productivity and gender roles in particular is possible through interation migration, but only to a certain degree. Can I ask you to speculate what would be required in order for these migrants to be truly liberated from the structures of power that they're trying to escape? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, it's something that I think about in thinking about my research as well and thinking about what's next. So I think in the beginning, I was talking about why more and more Japanese people are moving within Asia as opposed to the traditional movement of going to the West. So previously, I think the whole idea of heteronormative life course was associated with economic growth. And that the aspiration for economic growth often came with a specific imaginations of the hierarchy of nationhood. So the West was imagined as an aspirational future to which Japan should look up to. And in contrast to that, the rest of Asia was considered a place where Japan would constantly compare themselves to measure its progress. So I think in the root cause of that way of thinking is this idea of competition, of striving for something that's better and bigger. Whereas the people who are moving to Asia have completely been disillusioned by that whole idea of progress, the, this linear narrative, we are constantly going somewhere to improve ourselves, to be better. To be honest, I think they're quite tired of that narrative. So by going to Asia, it kind of gives them an opportunity to stop and rethink that particular geopolitical imaginary that place the West in the future and in a way place Asia, the rest of Asia, in the past from which Japan imagined itself. So I think the fact that more and more Japanese people are going to Asia probably shows that the predominance of this geopolitical imaginary and the associated thinking that we need to constantly be improving, to, to be progressing, to be winning the competition, is becoming less and less appealing to Japanese people. That is a really interesting finding, even more so because, as you said at the beginning when you started your fieldwork, these issues started screaming at you for attention and I think your findings are absolutely fascinating. I've just got two more questions before we wrap up. And one of them is about how you've identified these diverse motivations for migration and diverse modes of migration. And I just wanted to ask, what can these new inter-Asian migration patterns offer scholars in terms of exploring gender in diverse and novel contexts? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I can think of it in a two scales, I suppose. So firstly, I'm obviously not the first one to be thinking about gender in a transnational context. So many uh, great scholars have thought about that. The one that I often compare my findings to is uh, research by Kelsky, who talks about how Japanese women, young Japanese women from the 80s were going overseas to America specifically to escape that gender constraints and to find American male partners as a way to escape that. I think the current research also shows that they are also relying not just on other men or other country to rescue them, so to speak, but they are relying more and more on that solidarity network among women to create the interdependent relationship within the female uh, relations. So I think to look at that 
solidarity within a female relationship is something that I think will be interesting to look at in exploring gender and transnationalism. Another one might not directly answer your question, but to be completely honest, it took me a while to find women in my research, actually. And the reason for that is because I was looking for women or narratives in a public domain. So I was always hanging out in uh, public spaces of Japanese cultural center or restaurants or activity sites. Of course, there were women there, but then I didn't feel that I was really hearing their voices. And that completely changed when one of the female migrants gave me a yogurt that she made herself. She said that one of the female friends brought the yogurt starter from Japan and created a one set of yogurt and then she started to distribute it because yogurt is such that you can keep reproducing itself, right? And then by following that yogurt network, I realized that, wow, there is actually a whole population of women in the kitchen that I never thought existed. And then through that, I really got to hear their perspectives. So I think rethinking our methodologies of where to look for people, what voices to hear, I think is also a good way to, yeah, think about gender and transnationalism in the future. That is a wonderful story with your yogurt network. When I introduced you, I said that you're, you're tracing people, but also domestic things. And I think a, a yogurt starter is certainly falls within that domestic thing category. Um, let me wrap up with just one last question. And it's kind of the big significance question. And that is, what are the implications of your research for how we think about narratives of nationhood within Asia? Yeah, I think, again, it would go back to what we see as the normative ideals in our society. I think I mentioned economic growth as one of the ideals that have been promoted by the government uh, for such a long time. But as we can see from people moving out of Japan and go to Asia and feel the sense of liberation, even just for momentarily, I think it shows that we do need to think about the nationhood or the ideals of nationhood in a different way. So I think to do that, perhaps one way to do that is to put not competitiveness or, or growth in the center of our nationhood making, but different values such as interdependency or care or domesticity as the center of our collective thinking about what makes a nation. What a fabulous feminist rallying cry at the end to put interconnectedness, interdependence and community at the centre of national values. So really wonderful point on which to end. Shiori, thank you so much for joining us on CX Stories. I really enjoyed learning more about your research. Thank you so much for this opportunity. You've been listening to CX Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.